Welcome and welcome back to the Homestead Dreaming Podcast. This is episode number four. My name is Casey, I'm your host, and this show is an audio blog of what I'm doing to inch toward my ultimate goal, which involves buying land and building a subsistence farm. If my voice sounds scratchy today, it's because the state of Colorado is on fire and the air is filled with smoke and ash. It's really throwing me for a loop because the little anxious part in the back of my brain keeps trying to convince me that I have COVID-19 even though I don't have any other symptoms other than this scratchy throat, and I can literally see the particles in the air that are most likely causing it. This was a crazy busy week between the garden and work and family stuff, but I'm starting to learn that with a well-planned schedule and a little diligence when it comes to, you know, making my work time really focused, making my garden time really focused, just generally trying to be present in the task that I'm doing at any given time, I really enjoy being busy. Like, Looking back on this past week, I got a lot done and just generally felt happy and content as I was doing it, rather than anxious and overwhelmed by the workload. Drawing this connection makes me want to explore more on this topic of mindfulness and even meditation, so if you have any tips or resources that you recommend when it comes to these topics, I'd love to hear them. As for my main homestead dreaming task this week, my main focus was gardening. I had a series of great harvests. I went to the local garden center and picked out some seeds to round out my fall garden. And as is the necessity in every gardening household come mid-August, I spent a lot of time preserving the harvest for winter. Before I get into all those details though, I have a very special story to share. My grandfather was one of the most prolific gardeners I have ever met. He had an unbelievable work ethic, and his gardens were immaculate. Not a single petal out of place. I swear, he even trained the neighborhood rabbits to stay out of his raised beds. (laughs) My grandparents lived in North Carolina, and I was raised in Connecticut. But during one of their many visits throughout my childhood, I remember getting off the bus and running into the house. And when I looked through the kitchen window into the backyard... I saw my dad in his classic Tilly hat working in the garden. I asked Graham if my dad had left work early, and she said, no silly, that's your grandpa. He wasn't going to just sit around and relax while on vacation. He saw weeds in the garden and had to get to work, and he had a bucket hat of his own. My dad and I often wax poetic about whether my grandpa's gorgeous gardens and landscaping stemmed from a pride in in what was his, relating back to a tumultuous childhood. He and his family were taken from their village in Poland during World War II and sent to labor at a work farm in Germany. He was just 9 or 10 years old, deprived of education, and meant to take on the work of a grown man. He never talked much about his experiences during that time. He was a quiet stoic, not one to complain, and it's easy to understand why he might not have wanted to reminisce about the old days. One of my dad's best friends is a Spanish native and former professional highlight player. The highlight part isn't relevant to this story, but I include it because how often do you think I get to talk about (laughs) highlight? Anyway, Erky once had an employee whose family was from Poland. The employee was also a gardener who grew tomatoes that had been passed down through the generations of his family. The employee shared some of these tomatoes with Erky, who saved the seeds, with the employee's permission, I'm assuming, and added them to his own garden regimen. Thinking of my grandfather and his story, Erky gifted me two tomatoes and encouraged me to save the seeds. 
I think there's something incredibly beautiful about heirloom plants and their ability to hold history and culture in their tiny seeds. I feel honored to have been trusted with such a unique and interesting strain. This variety can produce very large tomatoes, with my personal record weighing in at approximately 1.5 pounds. They're very fragile, easy to blemish, quick to rot, but I find this to be true of most heirloom tomatoes. I have to admit something blasphemous. I don't like tomatoes. I know. I am objectively wrong, and yet the fact remains true. When raw, I find them physically revolting. I even despise the smell emitted by the plants. As such, I can't testify to the taste of these heirlooms while raw, but I have heard good things about their performance as slicing tomatoes. I exclusively eat tomatoes that have been cooked beyond recognition, so I use the bulk of my harvest to make tomato sauce. The small amount of seeds and the density of the flesh makes this variety well-suited for sauce, so I can as much as possible and serve it year-round with pasta or over oven-roasted eggplant. I often think of my grandpa in those moments towards the end of a day well spent in the garden, when I ease off my knees, wipe the sweat from my brow, and survey my work. Truthfully, I don't feel that I ever got to know him very well. I got to spend a fair bit of time with him over the years, in which he taught me how to count in Polish and impressed me with his ability to train the local wild rabbit population. I would have loved to have had a conversation with him about what his childhood was like and what got him into gardening. Instead, I pieced together the snippets and stories shared by my gram and my dad. I think it's safe to assume he would be proud of my lifestyle choices if underwhelmed by my apparent inability to keep a garden with straight, uncluttered paths. If a volunteer cherry tomato comes up in the middle of the garden path, who am I to rip it from the ground? I think he would have found these tomatoes particularly fascinating, both for their interesting qualities and for their history. Unable to share them with him, I relish in this tradition of raising them, and intend to do my best with documenting them and someday sharing the plants or seeds with others. I tell you this story now because this week I picked my first two Polish tomatoes of the year. I would have preferred to have them fully ripen on the vine, but I decided to pick them early because I'm having some pest issues. The back of my yard has two unkempt apple trees. They're original to the house, which was built in 1942, and supposedly they're diseased, so they don't really produce fruit. These trees are home to a family of squirrels, whose presence I have mostly enjoyed up until this point. You see, over the past couple of weeks, they have been systematically eating every cucumber they can find. Best I can tell, I have lost at least a dozen perfect, ripe cucumbers to these little bastards. I'm not thrilled about this, but at least cucumbers grow fast. Tomatoes take a million years, so I decided not to take any chances. Once they've developed their first blush of color, they can ripen on my counter in peace. And this goes for the peppers as well. After weeks of patience, it was finally time to harvest the potatoes. Here's the deal. I was never going to plant potatoes this year. However, I had planted Magic Molly purple potatoes last year, and they didn't do great, but the last of the harvest got away from me and sprouted in the pantry. I'm not one to look a sprouted potato in the eye, so I decided to try growing them in 20-gallon fabric pots, continuously adding more soil as the plants developed until the point that the bags were full. All season long, these plants have been crushing it. They were beautiful and healthy. They flowered when they were supposed to. They started dying back when they were supposed to. It was just a perfectly by-the-book example of what you're supposed to see when you're growing potatoes. I must admit, I let all of this information go to my head, 
and I was wicked optimistic about this harvest, which is foolish because anybody who has ever harvested a root crop knows that super healthy foliage above the ground does not necessarily indicate anything about what's going on below the soil line. All that being said, I was really pleased with the harvest. In the end, I pulled just under five pounds of potatoes from the two grow bags. They varied in size, lots of tiny ones, but there were some fairly big ones too. I think that's standard for this variety. The seed companies describe Magic Molly as a fingerling. So, yeah, I guess I'm hooked on the fabric pots for growing potatoes. I'm kind of shocked by the whole thing because after last year, I figured that moving forward, I just wouldn't bother to plant potatoes at all until I have land. They're just not a very good value-added crop for someone who has as little garden space as I do. Of course, any potatoes that I grow are going to be more delicious and more nutritious than the potatoes in the grocery store, so comparing price isn't entirely logical. But they're so inexpensive to buy that it just makes more sense for me to use my limited space to grow things that would cost more while buying potatoes in bulk. However, this year showed me that not only are potatoes super fun to harvest, but also they're pretty self-sufficient. I pretty much just watered them and otherwise ignored them. I didn't even actually water them that much because their location meant that they caught some water from the sprinklers every couple of days. And while, yeah, I could have planted other things in that soil, in those bags, in that location, I found that the more fabric pots I had situated on the rock border that lines my yard, the less I had to weed. The fabric pot garden doubled as a weed barrier. When the height of gardening season dies down, I will at some point sit and debrief on what went well and what went poorly in the garden this year and try to hammer out what makes the most sense to do for next year. But as of right now, I'm thinking that it will make a lot of sense for me to expand the fabric pot garden as much as possible to cover as much of the rock barrier as I can. And with everything else I have going on, I don't think it would be manageable for all of that to be plants that need constant attention. So potatoes might be a really logical option. A cover crop, if you will. Harvesting the potatoes opened up some more soil and growing space for use in the fall garden. And I can really only count on about 35, maybe 40 days before the first frost. So... I found myself at the local garden center to see what they have that grows quickly and loves cool weather. I picked out French breakfast radish seeds, so this will be my first time growing those. Everybody loves them, so I'm sure they'll be great. And this is really neat. They had a type of fast-growing miniature bok choy called toy choy. Apparently, it produces 5-inch tall heads of bok choy, and they're ready to harvest in about 30 days. This is probably the most excited I have been about a plant in a really long time. I hope they live up to their packaging, because I love bok choy, and I love tiny things. (laughs) I planted some of each, as well as some spinach from my seed stash and some kale that I had started last month. Um, I have more of everything, which I will be planting in a couple of weeks, so that I can hopefully get a bit of a staggered harvest. While hanging out in the garden this week, I met two really fun new friends. The first is more garden adjacent. I stumbled upon her one evening at dusk when I was taking in the blood red sunset, which is a beautiful but kind of ominous phenomenon created by the forest fires in the mountains. She's a large spider, and at the time, she was building her web between two trees running right across the walkway in front of my house. 
this is a problematic location because it's right next to the gate. It's the only entrance to the yard. And I was excited because her web was amazing, like four feet wide. But at the same time, that's a really bad location, like literally blocking me from my mailbox. So I was trying to figure out what to do about it. The next morning, I went out at 6 a.m. and she was still there. But then when I went out at 7 a.m., she was gone. Web gone, spider gone, not a trace left. This prompted me to do some research, and that's when I learned she's an orb spider. She's nocturnal. And so now, every night for the past week, I've gone out at dusk to watch her build her web, and I check again in the morning. Sometimes she's still there, sometimes she's already packed up for the day, depending on what time it is. Charlotte, of Charlotte's web fame, was modeled after an orb spider, so obviously her name is Charlotte, and I'm glad to have her in my yard. I really hope she likes cabbage moths. The second garden friend is a praying mantis. I had these all over my yard in Connecticut, and in fact, at one point, my mom was actually able to film two praying mantises? Manti? We'll go with mantises. Uh, They were inside of the gazebo on our deck, and she was able to get this footage over several days. First, they were mating, and then the female actually ate the male, and then the female hung out and digested, I guess, for a few days before wandering off to lay her egg sac. Uh, It's amazing. It feels like such a good omen to have one in my yard now, so I was just completely over the moon to find her, and I've seen her several times now, so I really hope she sticks around. As for food preservation, I spent every evening this week processing the harvests while dinner was cooking. I froze several more packages of shredded zucchini for future zucchini bread, as well as some eggplant and bell peppers. This week, I also processed the last of my carrot harvest. I had been storing them in the fridge to keep them fresh, but they were nearing that point where they would start to lose quality, so I decided to blanch and freeze them. My trick to make blanching super smooth is a pasta pot with a colander insert. The insert makes it super easy to drop the produce in and pull it back out without losing water, meaning I can do batch after batch with that minimal time lost to getting the water to boil. And as a bonus, I always take the leftover water after it's cooled entirely, usually I wait until the next day, and pour it on some of my garden plants for a little bit of bonus fertilizer. I don't think this counts as gardening, but it certainly counts as growing my own food, so I figured I'd share. When I went to the garden supply store to look at seeds, I bought alfalfa seeds for sprouting. Before the quarantine, I had thrifted a sprouting receptacle for a dollar and intended to do some research on how to use it, but I kept putting it off. I figured I'd tackle it this winter when there's not much else in the way of fresh produce around. But the seed store had a whole display of different types of seeds to try, so I picked alfalfa because they grow really fast, and I figured that would be a good introduction to see if I even like the process and if I'll actually eat the sprouts. And I'm happy to report that I do. I really like the process. It's super fun to watch. It only took about four days to produce a ton of sprouts, and I've been eating sprouts on everything. They're an especially great addition to rice and beans. I look forward to sprouting all sorts of different types of seeds this winter. This seems like a really great option for people who, you know, live in apartments or something, don't have anywhere to garden, but would like to be a little bit more self-sufficient. All right, that was my week. Thank you so much for tuning in. 
If you have any comments or questions, you can find me on Instagram at Homestead Dreaming or on my website, homestead-dreaming.com. If you're a homestead dreamer, I would love to hear what you did this week to inch closer to your goal. Stay safe. Have a great week. I'll see you next time.